So we want to continue our journey through 1 Timothy chapter 1. You'll find 1 Timothy, I believe, after the prison epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Then you have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, the early epistles, and then the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. While you're turning there, I did want to announce, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. John's got some in his hand in the back. He'll slip you a Bible. We want you to read God's Word with us, and we have some towards the front platform. But as you're finding your way to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I did want to say in the announcements, young adults, college age, Friday nights, um, young adults meet. Um, 7 o'clock, the book of Ephesians that Pastor Jesse's taking you through. So come out, love to have you come out on Friday nights. And so again, look at all the Bible studies that are taking place here at Calvary Chapel during the week. We do read, as you find yourself, at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, in grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you, verse 3, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. So, Father, as we continue our journey through this letter, Paul, inspired by you to write to Timothy, that there are things for us, Lord, that we may take heed to your word, that we would understand the importance of sound doctrine, how important it is in our conduct, how important it is to have spiritual life, and, Lord, the, the blessing of your grace and mercy in our lives. So, Lord, help us be attentive to the things that you want to show us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So after Paul is released from his first imprisonment in Rome in 62 AD, he would travel to Macedonia, as most of you know, to northern Greece. And while he's there, he writes to this young pastor named Timothy. And at this time that Paul writes this letter to Timothy, Timothy had been with Paul, ministering with him, for some 15 years now. As you read Acts chapter 16, we know that that's when Timothy was invited by Paul the Apostle on his second missionary journey to, to join Paul and Silas. And Timothy would do that. And Timothy, for all these years, has been faithful to, to labor with Paul the Apostle, to learn from him, even suffered with Paul. And as we discussed last time, as we opened up the epistle, that Paul is writing this pastoral epistle to the one that he calls a true son in the faith, and he is instructing Timothy in his conduct as a pastor, and Timothy is given this daunting task of pastoring this large church in Proconsular Asia, and instruction is given to him on how the church should function. It is coming at a time when Rome is about ready to declare war on the Christians, that Caesar Nero is about ready to take Christians and burn them at the stake and feed them to the lions in the amphitheaters. 
We know that inwardly in the church, as Paul had prophesied some five years before, he puts pen to parchment here, writing to Timothy, that he had addressed the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And he said to them that the time's going to come when these savage wolves are going to come, rising up, uh, speaking perverse things, drawing disciples after themselves. Don't you remember how I warned you day and night for three years with many tears? And now that has come true. And Timothy's going to have to deal with them. And, and Timothy, I urge you, verse 3, as we read this morning, to remain in Ephesus, that you may charge, or that word means command. We will see that word used again later in the chapter. It's a very strong word. It, it's like a, a military term, a commanding officer that gives a command to his soldiers. This is a charge, and it comes from God. This is a command. I am an apostle by the commandment of Jesus Christ. The only time that Paul uses that, that phraseology in his epistles. Other places he says, by the will of God, or I'm, I'm a bondservant. But this is a divine edict that comes from the Lord. And it, the command is given that you teach no other doctrine. One of the emphasis of this epistle in 2 Timothy is the teaching of sound doctrine. Timothy, you're going to have to confront those who have brought false teaching, speaking perverse things, drawing disciples after themselves. And as we read in verse 4, those who give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Timothy, there has been a charge that has been given to you. And that is that you are to be true to the gospel. And you are to be true to the word of God. That is what is meant when Paul writes in this epistle, no other doctrine or sound doctrine. Be true to this divine edict on how the church should be, order in the church, uh, the teaching of the word of God. And Paul continues instructing and encouraging this young protege as we continue in verse 5 of, of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience conscience and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So Timothy, as Rome is, is coming against the church, and within the church there are those who oppose sound doctrine. They're not given to godly edification, which is in faith. The purpose of, of giving you this charge, this commandment that is from God, as you hold fast to sound doctrine, to teaching, to be committed to the word of God, is to, number one, see people possess love. Now, Paul mentions, as, as we read, that there are those in verse 7 that desire to be teachers of the law, neither understanding what they say nor the things which they affirm. The purpose of this charge, this commandment, is love. And we know that it was the lawyer the scribe that came to Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, and he asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered by saying, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. We know that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, that love is the fulfillment of the law. And one of the last things that Jesus taught to his disciples right before he went to the cross was that they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. You see, as we hear the gospel, 
as we realize that God has proved his love to us while we are yet sinners. Dying on the cross for you and for me, he went to Calvary's cross because of his love for you. He died for you. And as we see his love that he first loved us, that we come to him, we receive the marvelous gospel. And then as he gives us a new heart, his spirit comes into our hearts. And then that, that love of God comes into our hearts to where we can love others. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The fruit of the spirit is what is love. So the aim of this command for sound doctrine, the goal, the purpose is to love. And then Paul qualifies it by saying, no, Number one, from a pure heart. Second of all, from a good conscience. And then thirdly, from sincere faith. There is this inward working upon the heart. And as he, he explains that love is the goal from a pure heart, I think, I wish that I could say that I have a pure heart. Can anyone here say that they have a pure heart? there was somebody in first service that raised their hands and I think they were half asleep and I said if you have a pure heart raise your hand and they just that's all they heard was raise your hand and <laughs> I'd like to say I want to have a pure heart the Bible talks about a clean heart and a pure heart but as we consider this and the word that's being used here it's speaking about that there is holiness that is being worked out in our hearts when we love God we want to live for him. We want to please him because we love him. And we will do more out of love than out of a legalistic mindset. Secondly, it produces a good conscience. Six times Paul uses that word conscience in the pastoral epistles. The word literally means to know with. A good conscience is born out of love for God and his word. He's working holiness in our hearts. We have a good conscience. We're not feeling condemned. Isn't it a terrible place to be when your conscience is condemning you and you're trying to suppress it, you're trying to push it away, when your conscience is accusing you and when your conscience is, is really eating at you? And then thirdly, this love, the aim is a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith, or that means an unhypocritical faith. So good doctrine, sound doctrine, is going to produce in your life good conduct. And as we follow the flow of what Paul has said in these few verses, as he begins to address Timothy, Timothy, teach sound doctrine. Don't teach other doctrine contrary to truth. That doesn't lead to godly edification. False teaching that includes fables and endless genealogies. They are causing division, confusion, leading people astray. It is not producing love, purity, a good conscience, or sincere faith. And some have, as he continues addressing Timothy, in verse 6, turn aside to, to sound doctrine. That word means gotten off uh, the path or the course of teaching what is sound, what is right, what is truth. They turn to idle talk. I believe the King James has it vain janglings is what is written there. The idea is meaningless babbling, empty verbiage. It is the kind of thing that produces more questions than answers and genuine faith. And then again in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. Now keep in mind that the scriptures that were available to them 
are what? Are the Old Testament scriptures, right? And so they are teachers of the law. They have no idea what they are talking about. They have this legalistic stance. They don't understand what the purpose of the law is. They don't understand what the law is for. They have no understanding of the implications of what it is they, they are teaching. And that was a big problem in the early church. As Paul continues writing in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, we've talked about this quite extensively in our Roman study recently. We know that this from the scriptures, that the law does have its place. It does have a purpose. And that the law does not make us righteous. It declares that we are not righteous. The law is there to show us our sin. Remember Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul would write, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law is spiritual. The law is God's standard. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is you and me. We are lawbreakers. The law condemns us. It shows us our sinfulness. And Paul would write in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, for you who like to jot down these references and then look them up later, that we read, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law makes us realize that we need the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. As we come in faith, then that's where justification comes. It is not through the law. It's kind of like every single one of you, when you got up this morning and you're going to get ready for church, I'm sure you looked in the mirror, right? And as we got up, we looked in the mirror, our hair is messed up, we got smudges on our faces and, and you know, all of this, guys, I need to shave. And, and we look in the mirror. Now, as you realize, as it reveals that you need to comb your hair and shave and get the smudges off and clean yourself up, you didn't take the mirror and start combing your hair with the mirror or trying to shave with the mirror, or scrub your face with the mirror to get the dirt and smudges off. Of course you wouldn't do that. Because the mirror is there only to reveal that you have dirt on your face, or smudges, or you need to clean yourself up. It's like if you have a, a thermometer that you take your, your temperature, and you have a fever, and you take you know, uh, your temperature, and yes, I got a fever 103 degrees, you don't eat the thermometer. It's there just to reveal that you have a fever. Well, that's what the law does. The law reveals that we are sinners. And it reveals to us that we have broken the law. So those who are teaching legalism, they don't know what they are saying. There is a purpose of the law, verse 9, knowing that this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, kidnappers, for liars, perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel, the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, the laws for the lawless, the insubordinate, the, the ungodly, it is not for the righteous. Those teachers who are leading people away from the liberty of grace, the freedom that is found in grace, that comes in faith in Jesus Christ, to the bondage of legalism. 
Paul would write in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore stand fast in the liberty by which God has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So the law is to point us to Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Remember verse 1 that we read? That an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. He is our hope. There is no other hope. Are we clear on that, Calvary Chapel? If you're putting your hope in religion or a legalistic system, that is not your hope. If you're putting your hope in trying to be good, that is not your hope. You don't put your hope in a church. You don't put your hope in a pastor. You don't put your hope in, well, my parents are Christians. I guess that makes me a Christian. Your hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And if you put your hope on anything else other than faith in him and what he has done and going to the cross and dying for your sins and rising from the grave, you have a false hope. He is our hope. So Paul is reiterating this, that the law is to point us to the one who is our hope to help us realize that we have broken the law. And so we need Jesus, our Savior, who came, who fulfilled the law. And he is the one that has set us free. The law will not set you free. It will hold you in bondage. Peter, when he was coming to the defense of the new Gentile believers in Acts chapter 15, it's a real important chapter to, to look at and consider because it was written, or that, that council meeting, the, the council of the elders that took place in Jerusalem, it, it happened right after Paul's first missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 15, they're trying to decide what is it that we're really going to tell these Gentile believers? What do we need to tell them? That they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses because Paul had established those churches in the in the area of Galatia on his first missionary journey when he left the Judaizers came in behind Paul and they said well that's fine that Paul says that you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ but there's more to it you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law of Moses so here is Paul and Barnabas they come up to Jerusalem there's John and Peter and James they're the leaders in Jerusalem the the apostles the elders come together they're those who were there, as you read Acts chapter 15, that were saying that these Gentile Christians, yes, we need to tell them that they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And Christianity at that time was in real danger of come, becoming just another sect of Judaism. So as they prayed and they sought the Lord, it was Peter who was the one that really brought the, the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. When you read the story about how he's in Caesarea, he gave the gospel to Cornelius that Roman centurion and his family and they got saved and the people were amazed the Jewish believers in Jerusalem when he came back you went into the home of a, a Gentile and Peter's telling them they got saved so Peter stands up in defense of those Gentile believers and and as he says to them that why do we test God by putting a yoke on the necks of those believers that we our fathers could not keep the yoke of legalism and so they came to the conclusion, led by the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 15 tells us, that this is what we're going to tell those Gentile believers. We're going to tell them to abstain from sexual immorality because they were coming out of paganism and, and, and idolatry, and that involved a lot of that. And don't eat meat offered to idols out of sensitivity and love to your Jewish brethren. And don't eat meat that's been strangled. Stay away from roadkill, okay? So if you do these things, you're going to be doing well. They did not say this is what we have to tell those 
uh, Gentile believers, that they have to keep the Sabbath, they have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses. They said, here's what you're to do. You know, stay away from immorality. You come out of that. Uh, sensitivity and love. Don't eat meat offered to idols. Meat that strangle. If you do these things, you do well. And you see, there are those who will come along to you and to me, and they will say that you're not saved unless you are, first of all, baptized. Some will say that. I get people that call me all the time and want to argue with that. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. And so I'll try to walk them through the scriptures that, you know, baptism is important for a believer. But when you come out into the water, and we do baptisms, and we'll be scheduling another one, when you come out in the waters, you are declaring that you are saved. You're identifying with Christ. You don't come out to the waters, and I don't want anybody to come out to the waters to be baptized to think that I have to do this in order to be saved. It's a declaration that I am saved, that, that I'm making a public declaration that I follow Christ, and now I'm identifying with Christ. And as I go under the water, it symbolizes that my sins are buried, and the old man is buried, the old woman. And as I come out of the water, it symbolizes that my sins are forgiven, washed clean, and I live in this newness of life, in this new resurrected life. But baptism is not for salvation. It declares that we are saved. Baptism is important to the believer, to take that, that step of baptism. But, but to think that that is you know, needed for salvation is not scriptural. Listen, what Jesus did on the cross, when he died for your sins and he cried out, it is finished. Will you believe that? It is finished. And he rose from the grave and the sufficiency of the cross to bring forgiveness and salvation and right relationship with the Father. And if anyone comes along and tries to add to that by saying you have to be baptized, there are those who will call up and say, why don't you guys at Calvary Chapel, why don't you keep the Sabbath? You're not really saved because you don't keep the Sabbath and worship on the Sabbath. Paul would say one man esteems one day above another. Uh, one man esteems every day alike, you'd be convinced in your own mind. You want to keep the Sabbath? Keep the Sabbath. But I'm one that I esteem every day to be worshiping the Lord for us to gather. We see that in the earliest of the church in Acts chapter 2, that they went from house to house breaking bread and praising God. They, they were worshiping the Lord. They were gathering every day. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you according to new moon feasts and Sabbaths. So there are those who will come along to say that you have to add to the cross of Jesus Christ, that his death on the cross was not sufficient for forgiveness and salvation. When the New Testament truth given to us is that we are justified freely, Romans chapter 3, freely means you cannot do anything to earn that salvation. You're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, make sure that you stand up to those who are teachers of the law who don't understand what they're saying. The law is not for the righteous. The only righteousness is those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's pressing this truth. There are those desiring to be teachers of the law. They really don't understand what they teach. The law is not for the righteous, but for the sinner to point them to the only one who can impute righteousness Jesus Christ. And then verses 9 through 11, we read that there's some 14 sins that the law condemns. But keep in mind this also, and this is important, as we saw going through the book of Romans, that Paul never dismissed sin. He never 
would encourage the, the Christians to continue in sin or entertain sin. He would encourage them to live for Christ, to walk in the newness of life, that you're dead to sin. He also would say you're dead to the law, to walk in the spirit, to pursue holiness and righteousness. And I think that is a message that's being lost more and more in the church today. And after Paul, he would write about the doctrine of justification in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of the book of Romans. Then in chapter 6, he would say, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? He said, no, no way. We're dead to sin. Again, we identify with Christ. We live in a newness of life. And we are to get people to surrender to Jesus, not to the law. And if somebody comes along and tells us to keep some legalistic thing to be saved, it is contrary to sound doctrine. And there will be those who will come along and they will say, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. I think about the thief on the cross that cried out to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him that, well, I'd love to save you, but you know what? You weren't baptized, so sorry, you're not going to get saved. Is that what Jesus said? I'm being, you know, facetious, obviously. No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise before the sun has set. Remember in Luke chapter 7, that woman, I love that story, that woman that was only known as a sinner. And Jesus is there at the house of Simon having dinner, the Pharisee, and she comes in, and, and you just picture it, this woman that, that comes into while they're having dinner, interrupts it, and you know there was a gasp from the people that were there, and she falls at the feet of Jesus, and she's crying, she's given her devotion, she's broken, and, and she's washing his feet with their tears and drying them with their hair. And, and Jesus is watching this, and he knows what Simon the Pharisee is thinking, that if he only knew what kind of woman this was that's touching him. And Jesus turned to Simon, and Simon, I got something to say to you. The one who's forgiven much loves much. And then he looked into the eyes of that woman. That woman looking into the eyes of God himself. And he says, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She went in peace. She didn't get to the door and Jesus said, oh, I forgot to tell you. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. He said, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Listen, it is finished. Do you believe that? Don't let anyone add to the cross what Jesus Christ has done for you for order for you to be saved. But as you are saved and you have a new heart, then you're going to want to live for the Lord. You're not going to want to continue in sin. You're not going to want to continue to be of the world and in the world. You're going to want to, to be free. If you want to be in bondage and in despair and defeated and depressed, then go out and pursue sin or entertain sin. And it's a loving father that says, no, don't do that, but pursue me. Be free. I've brought you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Why would you want to go back into the darkness? And I don't understand how it can be emphasized in the church more and more today. Just go out and live any way that you want. That there's no stand for biblical morality. 
or to pursue righteousness or purity, to, to live for him. And more and more, unfortunately, there are those behind the pulpit that are saying, you can live any lifestyle you want. You can live a homosexual lifestyle. It doesn't matter. God loves you the way you are. Just you don't need to turn from that. You need to turn from, you know, if you want to live with your boyfriend, girlfriend, just do what you want to do. We just love one another. A social gospel, progressive gospel, prosperity gospel being taught. All those things are flooding the church, and more and more the church is choking on the world. If you want to be defeated, and you want to be depressed, and you want to be downcast and in bondage, then have more of the world. But it's a loving father that says no. That you live for him and love him. And sound doctrine is going to bring right conduct and how we are to live for him because he loves you. And he's given you truth and he desires you to turn away from that sin, from the world. He says here that I've been entrusted with this glorious gospel. Remember that it was Paul that wrote in, in Romans chapter 1, the whole theme of the book of Romans, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. I've been entrusted with this glorious gospel. We need to, Calvary Chapel, be established in the gospel. There are some churches, again, they don't know what the gospel is. They don't teach the gospel. They've abandoned the gospel. It's a glorious gospel, glorious good news. We are hearing more and more in the news today about Christians that were well-known in, in, in the Christian circles renouncing their faith or writing that they're losing their faith. And, and people ask me, so what's going on with that? I don't know their hearts. I'm not going to pretend to know their hearts. But I just wonder if they ever were established in the gospel, if they were ever established in sound doctrine. There are those who are questioning, why would God say that this is wrong and this lifestyle? Why would he say that, that Jesus is the only way to heaven? God declares that because it is true. And they haven't been established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are more who are saying, we want to live any way that we want to live, and we want to come to God any way that we want to come to God. Think about this, folks. God the Father sent his Son to this world when we had no hope. Adam, you eat of that tree, and you shall surely die. And he did. And now sin and death has come into the world to all men because of Adam's sin. And God didn't leave us without any hope. He sent his son to come to this world, and he died in ways that we cannot fully understand the sufferings that he went through. He was marred more than any other man. He was beaten. They pulled out his beard. They, they flogged him. He, he was beaten beyond recognition. He hung on a cross. He died for our sins. He was put into a grave and he rose again. And we dare come along and we say that we don't want to come to the cross, that there's got to be other ways to come to salvation? That's an affront to God. And it's a glorious gospel that we don't have to be condemned. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I didn't come to condemn the world but to save the world. But those who do not believe are condemned already. He came to save. The gospel is glorious. Amen.
And we need not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but to share it because it is our only hope. And to stand true to the gospel and give that message that you don't have to die in your sins. You don't have to go to hell. That Jesus died for you so you can be forgiven and have eternal life in right relationship with the Father. That's a glorious message. It's a glorious message. And so Paul says that, that verse 12, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and an insolent man, that means violently arrogant. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. God has called me and put me into the ministry. He has committed me to this glorious gospel. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, verse 1. And it wasn't because of me, it's in spite of me. Paul talks about, he's very honest. He says, I was a blasphemer. That is, Paul denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And I believe when you read at the end of the book of Acts, when he gives his testimony before Agrippa in the amphitheater there in Caesarea, that he would say to Agrippa, I was one that caused others to blaspheme. He was one that he describes himself. I used my power to try to destroy the church. I put Christians to death. I was an insolent man, uh, violently arrogant. Paul, before his conversion, was a violent man. Uh, but I obtained mercy. Again, what does mercy mean? Not receiving what we deserve. God, in his mercy, did not give Paul what he deserved. So can I ask us a question this morning? Who is God's grace and mercy and salvation available to? It is available to anyone and everyone who comes to Jesus Christ and asks for forgiveness and surrender their lives to him. And Paul is a perfect example of how God's grace is able to save. No one is too far gone or too sinful that they cannot receive God's saving grace and forgiveness and salvation. Paul was one that he killed Christians. He says, I was a violent man. We know from Acts chapter 7, he held the coats for those men that was stoned Stephen. He received God's forgiveness and grace and mercy and never, never stopped praying for that person. Because maybe you have a child that's a prodigal that is living after the world and living in sin. And parent, you might be thinking there is no hope for them. Or maybe it's somebody that you know that you care about, an old friend or a coworker or whoever. There is no, no one too far gone that God cannot get a hold of their heart. You keep praying for them and know that they can be forgiven and they can be saved if they give their lives to Jesus Christ. Keep praying for them. And Paul was thankful, exceedingly thankful, because not only was he saved by grace through faith, he was made righteous by that. And, and he says, God has put me into the ministry, called me to the ministry. You know, for me to minister, for anybody who's in ministry, and we think about Paul was called to that. He didn't self-appoint himself or have other people come along and say, you know, we think you'd make a great apostle, Paul. He was called by God. And anyone who's involved in ministry, it's a calling in their life. And once in a while, I'll get somebody 
who will say, and somebody who may be young, they say, you know, I'm interested in getting involved in ministry or I want to go into the ministry, and I'll talk to them. I'll begin to try to encourage them. I'll ask them, why do you want to go into ministry? And once in a while, I'll get, well, I think it'd be good. As, uh, I want to serve people. Uh, it'd be a, a good career choice. It's not a career choice. It is a calling. In any of us that are in ministry, there needs to be the calling of God. And then second of all, the enabling of God. And Paul knew that. There is the enabling of God. And then knowing that God, as he gifts us and enables us, that he will work through us and he will bring that work to completion. And I am so thankful for that. I am so thankful for the calling of God that I've been able to be a part of this ministry here while being a pastor and being a part of your lives for all these years. I never want to take that for granted. And I am very thankful for the calling that he's given to me. And I know that he's enabled me. Anything that has come fruit from the Lord or good that has come is because he's worked and he's worked through us and he's worked through me. And he's enabled me to do what he's called me to do. And I want to remain dependent upon him. Because what can happen over time is you begin to depend on your own abilities and your own talents and your own togetherness. You can do ministry out of the flesh, but it's not going to work very well. And I want to be led by the Lord in everything that we do here. And I'm so encouraged as I'm reminded of Zechariah chapter 4, that as we see that Zerubbabel, he comes back from the captivity and and he comes back with Joshua, the high priest. They laid the foundation of the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And all of a sudden, the work stops. The work stops for about 12 years. You know, Zerubbabel was, you know, was frustrated. And Joshua, he probably felt like a failure, you know. He's the spiritual leader. And the work stopped, and the people turned inwardly. And they went home and did their own thing. And the word came to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, listen, the hands that began to build this temple are going to be the hands that finished it. Is is going to get done. And don't despise the day of small things Zerubbabel and it's going to be built this temple but not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts you see I want to bring it home a little bit closer to you because you might be thinking you know I'm not called a minister I'm not called to teach the word of God I'm not going to be in full time ministry every one of us have a ministry and maybe your ministry right now is raising those children in the ways of the Lord. Maybe your ministry is taking care of a sick family member. Maybe your ministry is discipling somebody at work or outside these four walls. Maybe your ministry is here working with the children, holding those babies in the nursery. Another ministry that God has called you to and you see, sometimes people will say, you know, Pastor Jeff, you need to be more aggressive about, you know, telling people to get involved in ministry. I don't want to get behind a pulpit here and say, you need to do this and you need to serve. I want God to call you for that. And then as he calls you, giving you the opportunities, because he's the one that opens doors that no man shuts and he shuts doors that no man opens. And as he gives you opportunity wherever he has placed you and whatever gifts he's given to you that you just continue in that and be thankful and know that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion especially to the day of Christ Jesus 
And you can rest in that and be thankful for that. And don't think that any ministry is insignificant to him. And I hope and pray that as you do, wherever he has you doing, that you have a peace about it and a joy about it and you're thankful for it. I am so thankful that the Lord would desire to use somebody like me. And I know that he chooses the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world and the things that are not to bring the not the things that are that no man glories in his presence. And what a joy it is when we are just serving the Lord in what he has us to do and allowing him to do that work. And I hope and I pray that you would consider that because he wants to use you. He wants you to bless others. He wants you to minister to others. And he wants to call you to that and then gift you and enable you in that. And it is such a joy. You know, sometimes I think that I hear people say, you know, you know, I do this volunteer thing at the church. Man, it's not just a volunteer thing. You're serving the Lord. And when people ask you, what do you do? Uh, I do this volunteer thing. I, I help the kids once a month. No, you're serving the true and the living God. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. What is it that you do? Man, right now I'm raising my kids in the ways of the Lord. Right now, God has me doing this, and I'm a servant of the Lord and having a peace about it and then allowing the Lord to just work in you and through you, and it is such a joy. Listen, you are here for such a time as this to minister to others, to be a blessing to others, to be used of the Lord. He has a calling for you to live for him and to be used of him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. There's so much we can talk about in these verses. And I thank you that your incredible grace and mercy given to us, that we can, Lord, come to you and, and come to you for salvation, for forgiveness. The cross. So wonder Paul said, I come preaching nothing but Jesus' cross and him crucified. And, Lord... I do pray for anyone who's here that perhaps you're here, you thought, well, I came to a Bible study. I'm doing okay. A Bible study won't save you. Bible study's good. But it won't save you. And a church won't save you. And trying to be good won't save you. Have you surrendered and given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you recognized your need to be forgiven and that he is your hope? We want to give you an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. The glorious gospel is that you have sinned and Jesus Christ came and died for all of your sins. And he rose from the grave and he is alive and he is the son of God and he is your hope, there is none other. He is the way, the truth, the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. And he proved it by conquering sin and death. He loves you. Will you come to him? Today is the day of salvation. And you can pray right where you are that, Jesus, I come right now. I confess that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. And I believe you died on the cross for me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you are alive. Speak into my heart, and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. I want this to be my gospel. I embrace it. I receive it. You are Lord. Thank you for saving me. 
and I want to know you and I want to walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God and your love for me. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, we're going to have a prayer team up here that, that come up and tell me the decision that you made. And, and we want to bless you. We want to encourage you. But for all of us, may we continue in sound doctrine and holding fast to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, not being ashamed of it, but declaring it to a lost world. And as we are holding fast to to your truth, Lord, your love being worked out in our hearts, may we live for you and not live for the world. The world is a terrible taskmaster. Lord, we want to be in that that freedom that we have in you, free from the darkness and deception, free from bondage, captivity, and defeat. We want to rest in your loving arms and hide under the shadow of your wings. I pray for those this morning that are hurting, Lord, because I know there are those who are who are experiencing loss or difficulties, who are confused, need provision. And Lord, that they would turn to you and find the comfort they need and provision, the wisdom they need, the strength they need, because you are everything. Minister to your people. May we go home with joy in our hearts, being sensitive to you, Lord, what you have for us and what you've called us to do where you've placed us, and to be thankful for that. An opportunity to serve the true and the living God. Bless everyone here now as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.